This is Altruistic, where we speak to pioneers in the race to zero and unpack the lessons from their experience for you, our community of impact professionals. I'm your host, Jamie Dujardin, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about decarbonizing the food industry. We're joined by two experts in the food industry whose unrivaled experience makes them uniquely equipped to guide us through the sector's decarbonization hurdles and challenges. Firstly, I'm thrilled to welcome Judith Batchelor, whose impressive career and impact is far-reaching. To name just a few of her roles, she is the Deputy Chair of the Environment Agency, Chair of the Government's Agri-Tech Council, and sits on the Food, Drink and Natural Environment Research Council. Prior to this, Judith spent 17 years at Sainsbury's as Director of Sainsbury's Brand and Director of Corporate Responsibility, Sustainability and Public Affairs. Alongside Judith, I'm also excited to introduce Dr. Stephen McKenzie, a sector specialist for modelling greenhouse gas emissions in food systems at RAP. Stephen advises businesses in modelling their GHG emissions through working groups such as the Courthold 2030 commitment. Prior to taking up this role at RAP, he spent 10 years in academic research roles with Newcastle University, Trinity College Dublin and the University of Edinburgh, all developing life cycle assessment models. Judith and Stephen, welcome. Great to have you on the podcast. How are you both? Great, and thank you for inviting us. Looking forward to what should be a great conversation. Absolutely, Jamie. Thank you so much. Not at all. It's honestly our pleasure, Altruistic. I'm going to jump straight into it. So over to you, Judith. It's no surprise to us at all that you were awarded an OBE in 2015 for your services to the farming and food industry, considering all the pioneering work you spearheaded in the food system. What made sustainability a business imperative to you? Well, I suppose on one level, it's common sense, isn't it? If you look after the world's resources in a way that is careful and thoughtful, then it will be sustainable. But clearly, at top level, that's a really interesting theory. Putting that into practice is something quite different. And for a very long time, a lot of those things were seen as nice to do or the right thing to do. But they weren't seen as imperative good business practice if you wanted to deliver a sustainable long-term business and what I would call sustainable long-term competitive advantage because you want to be there for duration. And I had a CEO who always used to say to me, Judith, you've got to play the long game. And I think that probably stuck with me. Those things have to be hardwired into business routines, rituals, reporting, ways of working. Otherwise, they just remain wishful thinking. And I think it's very easy to see businesses who've hardwired those things in and those that are still thinking it's a nice thing to do. And we need everyone to hardwire this into the way they do business. And businesses that look at decisions in a sort of holistic way are thinking about this totally differently to those that see this as like a cost we're going to have to endure and meet the minimum requirements, etc. So Stephen, over to you, I guess, then as well is RAP's mission is to transform global food and textile systems for the good. And that's something that really aligns with us at Altruistic. We primarily work with food and textile players. So I'd love to understand, like, in your eyes, what role do organisations like RAP have in uniting these sectors and also enabling and accelerating purpose driven business decisions? Thank you so much, Jamie. So I suppose the, at the very general level, an organization like RAP is uh, really trying to be a trusted partner for businesses across those sectors to convene action so that they can come together, in some cases in non-competitive spaces, 
to implement Target Measure Act. They need to understand what the target is that they're working towards on a specific issue, how to measure it, and what the actions they need to take to achieve the targets that they've set in the first place. Now, in the case of greenhouse gases and scope three emissions, which is a specific example that RAP is focusing on as a real problem area that needs resolving within the food sector. At the moment, we're in a place where we have set a target. You know, businesses have joined the Courtauld commitment and one of the targets that they've set is to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from UK food systems by 50% by 2030, which is a very ambitious target. We have just published a set of protocols and guidelines to help businesses measure the current footprint of their greenhouse gases and to understand how they can take action to achieve their targets at the individual business level. And we need to help businesses understand how they can act and implement those principles at the general level, but also to go further to work with the sector more broadly to think about the sub-level actions that they can take at the sector level so that they can really achieve these ambitious targets. So that's a kind of practical example of the overall principle, and we're going to, we're going to talk more about that today, really. I think it's really important that organisations like RAF and, you know, like the Science-Based Targets Initiative and so on are forcing the ambition in targets. And that's one of the elements that you lead on. And then providing the guidance and support to actually achieve those targets is a whole nother piece. A number of the challenges that these businesses, let's say, in the food space for the Courtauld commitment are facing are quite similar. But Judith, what you were saying, actually, the way they might tackle them could lead to quite a big strategic advantage in one way or another. You can find innovative ways to tackle this transition. And so it's on organisations like RAP to help everyone understand how they could tackle them at a high level. But once it gets into internal implementation, there's actually quite a big difference between different businesses and how they might tackle some of these spaces. The key is the quality of the implementation. That's why the act of the Target Measure Act is so important and needs to be done to a very high standard. And that's why RAP is so useful to all of us, actually, in holding us all to account. So thank you, Stephen. And also, there are so many misconceptions and lack of quality data, which is something we're obviously going to come to in this space, that lead to incorrect actions or misunderstood actions, that actually there is so much opportunity to act better. That's a two-way thing. So businesses can gain more knowledge in learning how to uh, uh, learn from others and how to act in more concrete ways that really achieve those targets by being collaborative through the voluntary agreements. It's not as it's not a zero-sum game as such. Definitely, and the amount of sort of systems change that is required to achieve a lot of this is going to be massive. Sticking to the food space, food production from farm to fork represents 30% of total emissions within the EU, approximately. This sector obviously contributes significantly to GHGs because it's so essential to the economy, but also that means it is one of the key sectors that policymakers and businesses are being challenged about in terms of decarbonisation and making change. What do you think within the UK and then the EU, if you see differences, are the key emissions hotspots? I'll start with the UK context. Thanks, Jamie, because it was only last year that RAP released an analysis on the the hotspots and effectively it showed that more than half of those emissions were coming really from uh, the primary production of food on farm or or language to that effect really accounts for well over 50% of the footprint of the UK food system and given that we're a country that imports more or less 50% of 
food that broke down along those lines so the figures aren't exactly like that but it's just under half of those emissions coming from imported products from overseas and just over half from practices on farm in the UK but as the big hotspot that you've got to think about tackling when you're really thinking about the food system overall and then there's a huge amount of actions going through the supply chain from that that can make a difference and one of the big demonstrations of that naturally being RAP and the history of RAP as an organisation that focused on waste and food waste. One of the key bits of that analysis was to figure out how much food waste was contributing to that footprint. And effectively, the approximate calculation that we derived from that was around about 23% of the food emissions from the UK food system were being caused by waste and loss at points through that supply chain. So you can see that there's huge actions that you can take right the way through to the consumption in the home and disposal. But some of the big ticket items that we need to focus on is how food's being produced right at the start. That last point, Stephen, is really important because at the consumer end of things, there are some real misconceptions around where the the hotspots are. And people talk about food miles as being, if I can buy locally, then that solves all those problems. And of course, it's, if, it's not as simple as that. It's much more important how your food is produced and what was produced on that land before it became agricultural land than it is how that food got to you. I think it's only 18% of total emissions come from the supply chain part of that. And that is obviously counterintuitive to what most people think. So we've got some quite big messages to get across. But I think the work that RAP has done is brilliant in mapping that out and starting to create what I would call as sort of high quality, typical values for supply chains that people can rely on as a really good proxy for their own supply chains. But nothing is more important than understanding the materiality of your own value chains and where your own hotspots are. Uh, that is is really important when it comes to Target Measure Act because you want to act on where those, I would call them priority places, but they are those important places in your supply chain where you know that your interventions will be rewarded with some significant impacts. And that means knowing your supply chains better than that you probably have done historically. And where... There are points of commonality with other supply chain members because we're all in this together, aren't we? So it's highly likely if it's my hotspot, it's also someone else's hotspot. And therefore, the, the, the ability to collaborate and take collective action is, is quite important. We recently did a piece of work with a, a food business on the transport piece where they wanted to understand the relative emissions between Mm. some garlic they were buying in Spain and garlic they were buying from China. And the assumption was that, you know, coming from China, the transport emissions would be much higher. But actually, when you looked into this specific supplier, it was being shipped from China and driven from Spain. And the transport emissions wasn't that different. But the garlic from China was still much, much higher in total emissions. And that was being driven by the fact that on average, fertilizer use is much more abundant in China than it is in Spain. And really understanding these drivers and what is really causing emissions is going to be so important to creating change and driving action. And the number of misconceptions out there right now is very hard to tackle. One of the things that struck me from both the RAP report, but also just generally in this space is that 
not one, there are a number of misconceptions, but also two, where these hotspots might be changing over time. We said for the UK food system, and I guess much of the EU's food system as well, there's a huge amount of imported food. And hotspots will come from suppliers of some of the UK's biggest food businesses, food retailers and so on. That means that to understand both emissions, uh, measurement of emissions and drive action, a, a huge amount of supplier engagement is needed. And so we'd love to know, Judith, just from your experience, where do you think the greatest challenges are in successful supplier engagement in the food space? Well, I suppose it's it builds on what we were just talking about. If you understand where your materiality is, then you can talk to your supply chain partners about where that the mutual areas of materiality are. I always describe it as all roads lead to, but there are these really highly consolidated points in the value chain. So the global food system is both highly fragmented and highly consolidated. So highly fragmented with millions of smallholder farmers producing 30% of the world's food comes from smallholders, tea, coffee, sugar, bananas, rice, so on. Highly fragmented at the consumer end of things. And then in the middle, you've got these really interesting points of consolidation. But in order to do that, you have to speak the same language and you have to use the same currency to measure where those points of interest are. You know, data is a big topic and I won't talk about that now. But unless you are talking using similar definitions, similar language, understanding that, then quite often things get genuinely lost in translation. And it's important that we deal with that because we need to create what I would describe as along the whole value chain or even value system. Because if it was only as simple as a chain, life would be great, but it isn't. It's a value and supply system. If we can create that collective understanding of where we all need to focus our efforts to intervene and creating that connected business case, then we can deal with some of the biggest issues that we've got. And some of the biggest issues we've got are where the investment needs to take place may not be necessarily where the return on that investment is vested. And that creates tension. So you will hear people talk about a fair price for farmers or ensuring that everyone shares equitably in the profit of a supply system. And, and, absolutely understand that but underneath that there are some real complexities as I say about where the big investments are being made where those investments return and importantly particularly if you're expecting a consumer to pay for those investments <clears throat> so to pay more for things that may be more sustainably sourced you've got to be able to connect the customer with the person that's produced that food, which is, again, digital technologies, all those things make that possible, but it's not normal. And there are lots of reasons why it doesn't happen in the way that it should. But that connectivity, connected business case, collective investment and return, rewarding all stakeholders to create a sustainable food system is really important. But... Um, I always say my scope one and two is someone else's scope three emissions and vice versa. So if we can all measure and focus in the same way, it's going to make life easier for all of us on everything from 
taking the appropriate action to to reporting on this and making sure that reporting is accurate because that's the only way we're going to get to net zero is by accurate reporting but that's a that's another topic <laughs> i totally agree with you that supply chain engagement at some point probably needs to move from engagement about measurement to engagement about acting but we need to tackle the first box in order to successfully tackle the second one and create these collective business cases i absolutely love that term Stephen, over to you from your work with rap you probably hear a number of businesses talking about some of the challenges with supply chain engagement would love to hear what you think they're facing thematically as well Yes, well, what they face really touches on some of the points that that Judith has just raised. And what you're looking at really is a perception that burden falls on producers to supply the relevant data. But do they see the benefits of that? And do, do they get the benefits financially from the costs involved in doing that? So that's a general perception of fairness really within the industry and whether increasing this kind of ramping up these data asks is fair in that kind of really fragmented area with lots of small producers and then the second is faith faith in the data being supplied being used in a consistent way and being used for the benefit of the person supplying the data And, and that's one of the things where inconsistency in how it's used and inconsistency of methods really undermines efforts sometimes because it doesn't create an impression that uh, handing over such information, which may have been very difficult to get hold of in the first place, is going to is going to benefit your business, is going to actually help you. So yeah, they're the kind of barriers. And obviously at, at, at RAP, we are trying to do things like pilot specific sets of questions for certain food products that can at least uh, start to be used in a consistent way through the sector. The sector needs to come together, work out what its key data asks are, and then apply those consistently so that everyone's getting a fair deal in supplying that information and everyone's getting information consistently at the consumer end so they're making informed choices if they are making choices on those issues based on that information both of you spoke about fragmentation in the number of suppliers and therefore just the challenge and scale of how much engagement is required but then also this fragmentation in standards that i think exist today in, in the sustainability space and, and data standards data requests etc leads to a, a sort of exponential increase in that burden even further to your average agribusiness might be responding to five different retailers and five different data requirements with five different data structures and so on and that burden just gets larger and larger and almost distracts us from getting to the act that makes us have to focus for too long on the measure. So I can see both of those from our experience working with businesses as well. You started to mention consistency of data, Stephen. So we'd love to get into this one. Research conducted by RAP in the development of the measurement and reporting protocols found that one of the most common barriers in scope three data collection was poor data. Now, what I'd love to understand is how do we start to bridge the gaps in understanding and tackle some of the inconsistencies in data so that we have a true measurement of emissions or at least a consistent measurement of emissions that we can all work work from. There's two routes to tackling that problem, one of which is the end goal, which is quite an ambitious one. And as you mentioned, we don't want to delay all the action until we get to kind of perfect data, which is the idea that we have this joined up system, which will tell you the emissions associated with a specific food product that you're buying on the shelf. That requires a large volume of information coming directly from producers all the way through the supply chain to the point at which it's sold. But 
there is obviously action that can be taken in the in the inter intermediate time before then and we set out actually in those scope free protocols a bit of a hierarchy for quality of data going into emission factors going right down from the bottom which is using average emission factors and understanding the amount the companies are spending on a particular product in their supply chain and going right the way up to effectively having primary data that tells you both the emission factor and the exact amount of that product that you have. And in between that, you can be improving on either of those two things. So you can be getting towards better average emission factors, which the industry can do by coming together and potentially say at the UK level, agreeing to supply certain data into a pot that will allow it to be quite confident of what the average emission factor is, or it can be improving the quality of the data by understanding at the very granular level where and how much of particular products it's buying, and then using that information to take slightly adapted average emission factors off the shelf to at least get towards a bespoke footprint for the kind of inventory of food products that got going through its supply chain and selling on. I would say that our general feeling from what we know from talking to members of our agreements is that a lot of people are still having to operate at the lower end of that within the sector just for practical reasons of information available. But at least setting that out gives everyone a pathway as to how that can improve. And we only need to get as far along that pathway of improving that to take meaningful action. It doesn't have to be a perfect utopia. We just need to get far enough that we can demonstrate real reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from the sector. There are two other big things that always come up to my mind in this. One is that the speed at which companies are having to move from not tracking this at all to reporting on it means that a number of them are going down the easier route, but we shouldn't scold them for that. It should be a, an incremental journey to more accuracy and more granularity. And how we support companies on that is, is really important. The second is choosing material areas to go into more granularity. You could go into huge amounts of granularity around, you know, areas of your supply chain that make up 0.1% of your total emissions, your commuting data for a big food retailer, for example. Right. And actually that way, spending less time on that and more time really understanding the food you're sourcing, where you're sourcing it from, and that those impacts is, I think, really important as well. I was going to add to that that you've touched on the exam questions, really, that we often ask ourselves, which is how good does the data need to be good enough for us to take action and how much data is enough? You know, it's the sort of classic 80-20 rule, isn't it? And I think there's one other principle that is almost designed to reduce the burden on individuals. And that's the question really around how you collect it and how you share it and syndicate it. So this idea of collect it once and, and multi-purpose it and serve it up many times. And if you are going to take that principle, then you've got some interesting challenges around public and private data and how public and private data is shared for government purposes, for business and private purposes. But we know we can do that because we did that during the coronavirus, you know, first lockdown when we had some really big challenges around people who were clinically vulnerable. So we know we're capable of doing that in a way that's safe for the data and means the data can be used and combined for the common good. But that does require us changing the way we do things, not just for emergencies, but 
for operating with the climate and nature crisis in the background. If we can find a way of doing that, and I think that the government announced in the recent DEFRA white paper on the follow-up to the National Food Strategy, the idea of the Food Data Transparency Partnership, that becomes something that could potentially be hugely powerful in answering those three questions. You know, how much data is enough? How good is good enough? And let's collect it once and serve it up many times. Getting to perfect data can sometimes also be seen or used as an excuse for getting on with action. What are the minimum requirements that we can feel confident in our decisions? It's something that we're all trying to find the line on and finding some standard around that will be hugely, hugely valuable. You called it the climate and nature challenge that we're facing or crisis we're facing. There's a lot of focus right now on emissions and emissions data. Would love to know where you think businesses should also be focusing. As I look at the Courtauld commitment, for example, it also thinks about measuring food waste in an absolute number, also talking about water security. How do we broaden our data horizons beyond just emissions factors to impact understanding in a more holistic sense? We definitely have to, because these things are not all mutually exclusive. They are all inextricably linked. So whether it's nature, water, people, climate, we have to look at these things holistically. And I think the way to do that is, again, through these data requests and what a minimum data set looks like for water. What does a data set look like for social and economic impacts? Hopefully... If we get to where we need to get to with something like the Food Data Transparency Partnership, which can work across all of government, so bringing in all sorts of different data sets that mean that we can learn and focus our attentions, then that will be, I say, a big step forward. However, once you've got all of that data, you've still got to prioritise. And I think one of the things, people talk a lot about trade-offs, trading off climate and nature, trading off water, people, economic impact and I prefer not to think of it as trade-offs but as a really rigorous prioritization process that says actually in this particular set of circumstances these people these supply chains these commodities these geographies actually the three most important things are water people and economic survival and therefore those are the things we're going to prioritize for this particular place in the world but in other places those priorities might be very different and we've got to get to the point where we've got enough data to be able to prioritize given the holistic approach to these things prioritize the things that matter most in those places and we're not in a position to be able to do that yet so a lot of those things really are trade-offs because we don't have the information to be able to properly prioritize But I don't think that's far away when it comes back to how do you collect the data and multipurpose it so you can prioritise and and do the right thing in the right place. I definitely think as soon as we ever bring up beyond emissions, people go, oh, my God, another challenge. But actually, I think a lot of the data that businesses need to track is activity data. And then it's on organisations such as the government, such as data houses and so on, to support them in understanding what the impact of those activities is. But providing a holistic view of that will be the long-term vision for many of us, because once we solve the climate crisis, I'm sure there will be a sort of land use crisis or another crisis that we can dig our teeth into. 
Stephen, uh, uh, RAF have always always been thinking beyond just climate from throughout everything from like the plastic pact through to the court old commitment. How do you guys prioritise what comes into each of your voluntary commitments and what data do you think is most important to track? First of all, it's about doing exactly what Judith was just talking about, but on the micro level as an organisation. What are the key issues that that we're looking to help businesses resolve in the different sectors that you're talking about? What are the issues that they really need to tackle to survive and be sustainable? Once you get to that point, and we've boiled that down now to food waste, water stewardship and greenhouse gases, then you're just looking at understanding, well, what is the data that you need to understand whether any progress is being made on that issue? Effectively, it's all done in consultation, but ultimately you're setting really ambitious targets about an issue that's in the public discourse and really needs dealing with and needs a trusted actor to convene people to coalesce action on it. In the cases of greenhouse gases, I suppose, one of the issues that people really needed to deal with it was consistent methods, hence why we ended up publishing those protocols and going down that route. In other areas, uh, these voluntary agreements are a bit more established in, in relation to food waste and things like that and we can get down to much more granular level of action and recommending actions for businesses and we will get there on the issues of water and greenhouse gases as well and we are getting there but that kind of ability to even measure it is one of the key things that the sector as a whole needs resolving at the moment and needs some clear direction on so that everyone doesn't feel like they're playing an unfair game. I love that that is just the actionable, the version of what Judith was saying, which is how do we bring the right people in a room and ruthlessly prioritise together to get to the most important things we can act on right now. I think there's a, a lot of exciting stuff to come in the beyond emissions data space. A number of us probably know that the GHG protocol are working on land use standards and there are more standards being developed and it's a really exciting time to measure impact in a more holistic way. Well, yes, we need to be providing clear guidance on what are the steps that you take as a food business to comply with those standards and do it in the right way. And I think that's uh, one of the gaps that RAP is trying to fill at the moment is really to, to provide that clear guidance for the food sector when lots and lots of different documents are coming out at the same time. And documents that require quite educated individuals who have spent a lot of time thinking about these problems to understand those documents. So really translating them into business action is a very difficult task. So I'm something that RAF is definitely doing amazing work on already. Something we haven't really touched on yet is where policy comes into all of this. We'd love to understand, Judith, what do you think the importance of the public sector is in driving change? And how do you start to see the public sector and private sector working together? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Policy comes in all shapes and sizes. But of course, the key thing for policy is not the policy, but how well it's implemented and how well it's regulated, enforced, so on and so forth. It's fundamental in this space because we're talking about very complicated systems approaches to things and we're trying to drive systemic change. And as we will all know, this fabulous multi-stakeholder system is not going to self-organise. Far from it. And therefore we need someone to do that for us. And that's governments acting with really intelligent policy and first-class implementation. And I think that for me, the hard line between where do you need the public sector involvement and where can you rely on the private sector to get on with it is this understanding of what either citizens or the markets will do for themselves in the way that they will self-organise. And if I think of some of the things that have happened voluntarily, 
over the years, there have been some really big steps forward with things like nutrition labelling, multiple traffic light labelling, those kind of things, which weren't actually, people forget, but they weren't turned into regulation until 2015. By that point, we'd had nutrition labelling on packaging for 15 years in a standardised format because actually that's what consumers wanted and that's what business wanted to be able to label products accurately. However, this is not quite as simple as putting nutrition labelling on a packet. And therefore, we do need government to do what markets and what citizens won't do for themselves. And that also has to operate within a global context. And that's the bit that's really difficult because the challenge around policy, UK policy at home is one thing. But then the big question you always get asked is, well, what about everything that we import and is it a level playing field? And is food that's produced elsewhere in the world produced to the same standards, so on and so forth. So I think we do need that because we've just been talking about greenhouse gas reporting. The challenge about greenhouse gases are that they know no corporate or geographical boundaries. The greenhouse gases are everybody's problem, but other things aren't. And therefore, there are competitive advantages if the policymakers aren't there doing a good job for us. So I'm a big supporter of intelligent policy, I say, where the markets and citizens won't do it for themselves and where we drive first class implementation, because that's the bottom line, isn't it, really? But again, reasons to be optimistic. We've done some amazing things in the last two or three years that show what we're capable of if we really put our minds to it. So, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can do this. Yeah. How do we ensure that public and private actors do work effectively together? And where does the role of policy and the public sector end and translation into the private sector begin? Okay, so I suppose from our perspective in the areas that we work on at RAP, uh, we very much play an intermediary role between those two areas so we're very much in live discussion with policymakers, but also with uh, sector bodies and groups of industry that have come together to make specific commitments on important issues apart from playing that intermediary role we can only uh, set the direction of travel in terms of achieving those objectives based on the willingness and desire of industry to sign up to them. And it's not always policy that drives that kind of signing up to high-level agreements on important issues. But that action can always be turbocharged by policymakers locally by making it clear priority, providing funding and providing clear direction on what the goals are from the government perspective. So if I give an example in relation to the scope three, we've just been talking before about what are the hotspots, what are the key areas where emissions are being driven. And we've talked about data and we've talked about the idea that the burden is sometimes falling on producers and not necessarily the benefits from reduced uh, emissions from uh, producing food. Now, it would be on government to help define through policy what a new model would look like that would reward it as a market for producing low carbon food in the UK. And there is a current opportunity to do that through the Environmental Land Management Programme. But equally, without any action there, Uh, businesses may step in and come up with alternative models, but it's less likely 
effectively. So there are certain areas where it really is important that we get government action. However, these issues being beyond national boundaries, particularly the greenhouse gas issue, and the idea that some of these things are driven by investment and perceived risk in businesses not taking action, businesses will find ways to take action within the current infrastructure that they exist in. But you can always make that infrastructure more helpful. I think how we change the system and then how that is implemented are two steps in terms of creating change. And there are roles on both sides of the public and private boundaries in order to make sure that happens effectively and as quickly as possible in the current circumstances as well. The next few years are absolutely critical in aligning to a 1.5 degree temperature trajectory. And so what is RAP looking to focus on in particular over the next three to five years? And where should the food sector as a whole be directing their efforts to achieve that ambition? I'm going to refer again back to that analysis that we produced in 2021 on an overall uh, potential pathway for the UK food systems to achieve their 50% target ambition for reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. From the RAP perspective, we would be looking to focus on going into more detail on what that pathway looks like in terms of specific actions for businesses. We have produced some kind of top level areas where action is really needed. Um, in one of the charts in that report, we call the waterfall chart, which effectively gives these cascading steps of areas where action would lead to a certain estimated level of emissions reduction. But I think there's clear desire from businesses and from our signatories for that pathway to be filled out in a more concrete way. And we'll be focusing on that. And then when you talk about a longer period, it, the three to five years, holding people to account as to whether those actions have been implemented. But in terms of the priority action areas within that analysis, you would see that there needs to be clear action on achieving efforts to ensure that deforestation is less of a factor in the UK food system. That kind of is a huge chunk, 10, 11% of emissions that could be reduced if clear and coordinated action was taken. We mentioned before the necessity of energy market decarbonisation to help businesses achieve those. And again, that was that we're talking about between 13 and 15% of the UK food emissions could be reduced just through action in that area. And also one of the areas we'd be looking to explore further would be uh, implementation of recommendations around dietary change. We identified in that analysis the idea that the adoption of the Eat Well Guide could produce and this is a, an approximate estimate, around 9% reduction in emissions from the UK food system. And we'd be looking to define more clearly in collaboration with others working in that space, what the potential is there and what the realistic potential is there, because it's an area that drives a lot of interest. And I think it needs more understanding. It's really exciting to see that you're going from defying these big levers and making it clear and aligned what they are to how do we start acting on those big levers and where's the guidance to mm -hmm. to make change quickly and make it effectively as well. I was going to just add to that because you know Stephen talked about this massive transformation for the eat well guide and that's something that everyone can do because you know three times a day if you eat three meals a day you've got an opportunity to do something about the nature and climate crisis but you've also got something that you can do to take positive action for your own personal health as well as the health of the planet. But there's the kind of elephant in the room to that, which is 
even if tomorrow everyone said, I'm going to eat the Eat Well Guide and we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, water use, we're all going to live longer, so on and so forth. The world actually doesn't produce what the world needs to be eating. So we've got these big global system transformations to drive, which is why uh, governments working both at home and internationally to understand these great big transformations, what's required to make them happen at pace and scale. If you look at any big transformation over time, you get to those tipping points, don't you, where suddenly consumers get it. And then supply and demand can't be matched because we've all been hedging our bets for too long. And then when customers finally vote with their feet, we don't show up for them. So I think there is this bit of what we would call in the market push and pull. How much pull from consumers, how much push from the system is required to create these massive transformations. And in many respects, I think the transformation from the world producing what the world should be eating from where it is today is probably more complicated than the decarbonisation agenda, if I'm being honest, because we don't all eat the same foods. If you look at the cultural differences in what the national dietary guidelines look like in India or Indonesia versus the national dietary guidelines in the UK or the rest of Europe, there's a few big systems transformations to happen. That's interesting, but also really shines a light on how interconnected a number of these challenges are going to be for the food system. Changing of diets, changing of food systems, changing of emissions, but also land use, all of these impacts that you both have mentioned. Tackling that all at once is one of the great challenges. To round off, I would love to ask you both the same question. What's the main piece of advice that you would give to a business leader today who is trying to reduce their scope three emissions and accelerate action in their supply chain? Mine are hugely practical because at the end of the day, I'm a practitioner. So I'm normally the person at the end of all of this who has to make it happen. So (laughs) I would say absolutely be ruthless about focusing on the 80-20 rule because that's the only way that we're going to cut through all of the noise around this. I talked earlier about looking for the points of consolidation where people can all agree those points of interest in value systems because that's where the mutual benefits are and that's where you'll get pace and scale. And then I suppose the last one is don't die under the burden of the data because, you know, how much is enough, how good is good enough and collect it once and multipurpose it several times. Those would be my top three things. Stephen? Some of my points are actually going to echo Judith's a bit there, but one of the three things that I was going to talk about was particularly thinking early about uh, how you're going to get the data that's going to enable you to justify the actions that you take. So being very clear that when you're making business decision with financial implications, that they're at least going to achieve the outcome of reducing your greenhouse gas footprint that you set out to do in the first place, because that's ultimately going to be the thing that enables you to go and do things that may be required by investors or governments in the future relating to climate-related financial disclosures and things like that, you're you're going to have a solid evidence base that you've acted in that way and that it's achieved those outcomes. In addition to that is to be pragmatic about the data available to you and to act in the best faith with the data that you can get and you can use 
and not to delay action just based on the idea that you, uh, you you don't have the perfect picture. And the final thing would be to collaborate. I mentioned early in this podcast, it's not a zero-sum game. The sector can uh, share learnings if people engage with forums. I'm obviously from RAC going to plug the Courtauld commitment as one of those forums that the UK sector can engage with, but there's many more out there besides that. UK engage with forums to act collaboratively, to share information where you can to ensure that kind of level playing field that enables good faith within the sector for people to act is created so that you can see the benefits of the action that you take and people have faith that they've achieved those outcomes. Thank you both so much for those answers because they're really eye-opening. And so just would love to say from my side, a huge thank you, but also three things that I have just taken away from this that I think have come up a couple of times. The first was one of the great data challenges we're going to face or are facing is fragmentation, whether that's fragmentation in the number of players that we need to tackle or the standards that, that we have to me- measure to or the measurement techniques that we are using. All of that is creating a huge burden and challenge and, and this focus on the 80-20 getting to a good answer and then being able to act based on that is, is really important and something you both just reiterated there. The second thing that I just absolutely love this term and have taken away from this as well is this concept of a connected business case and how we are going to get to the connected business case to create action. And I think it, the reason I love that so much is it really lands this point of joint engagement and collaboration is necessary to tackle this crisis. And it's not a we can act on our own in our own little bubble over here we need to work together and and working towards these collective business cases or connected business cases is is really important and the third one is i guess one of the most interesting ones just strategically as well is we have some big global system transformations that are about to come from this the other piece of that is that a lot of the investment that will go in may not lead to return on investment in exactly the same place and so how we manage this transition in an equitable but fast way is something that is going to be exceptionally challenging and I think explains exactly why we will need both the public sector and policy and the private sector to act together. Thank you both so much for such an interesting conversation from my side and it's been uh, absolutely wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation and I think we could go on for hours, couldn't we? But that's probably enough for now. Till the next (laughs) instalment. Thanks for listening to today's episode of This is Altruistic. Do get in touch if you're on a journey to understanding your business's environmental impact. The notes from this episode are available in the show notes below, and you can find more episodes of the This Is Altruistic podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts.